We exist to reach the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. We are not preaching a message once on Easter that we leave, but it's from this gospel that we live and breathe and move. It's the gospel that reminds us of what we are, that we really are forgiven, that it really is true, uh, that we don't have to earn our salvation, but it is a gift that has been received by grace through faith. It's an incredible gospel. And this morning we get to open up God's word to John chapter 15 and continue to remind ourselves of what this Christian life in view of his cross looks like. Uh, We're in a series of teachings on what's known as the upper room discourse. It starts in John 13. It concludes in John 17 when Jesus is abandoned by the disciples, betrayed and denied by Peter, arrested and tried before Pilate, and ultimately crucified in front of masses that just days prior had waved palm branches and called him Savior. They now line the streets ridiculing him and calling him accursed by God. And he became a curse, that's what the scriptures teach, for you and for me. You see, you and I are born in the image of our first father, Adam. In sin, cursed by God. But we now have been given the opportunity to be reconciled, to be made new. Did my mic go out? Are we still there? Can you hear me? Amen. So we've been given this opportunity to be made new. And in the last hours of Jesus' life, he intimately closes a door in an upper room. And he washes his disciples' feet. He demonstrates radical love. He teaches more about his identity. And then in John chapter 15, he moves on to discuss the relationships of the believer. There are three relationships that were given insight to in John chapter 15. In John 15, 1 to 11, we're given insight into our relationship with Jesus Christ as believers. Uh, You will need, in order to live the Christian life, an ongoing, active, and intimate relationship with Jesus. The fruit you bear, the impact you make that's for the glory of God, will heavily depend upon the health of a vertical relationship between you and God. Are you tracking with me? And so he starts by talking about the vertical relationship between us and God. But you and I are not created to live life alone. Uh, We've been created to share the burdens of life and multiply the joys of life together with with a people who we have a bedrock unity with that is greater than any cultural difference that would divide us in the world. It's greater than any uh, cultural uh, marker that would distinguish us as not being family. You see, the word Christian originally has this origin in the book of Acts. Whenever a multicultural gathering of people got together and they couldn't define it by cultural markers anymore. The only thing they could use to describe a multicultural gathering like that was the word Christian. And so we are by name a multicultural gathering. People from different backgrounds, colors, creeds, uh, people from different economic statuses that have all found our hope in reconciliation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But unity is not easy, and it's not a new thing. It's an old thing. Churches not getting along. That is a consistent theme because the enemy knows that if we are healthy in our relationship vertically with Christ and we're healthy with other believers who are walking towards Christ, that we'll be unstoppable from taking the darkness away from the world around us and penetrating it with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the enemy attacks the unity of the church and tries to make markers where there is to be no marker. 
And the book of Galatians is a book that's written about ethnic tension. Most of and many of the New Testament letters speak to how Jewish you have to be to be Christian and, and how Jewish Christians were stirring up strife and contentment between Gentile Christians. The entire letter to the, book, uh, to the people in Rome is a letter written about the foundation of the gospel being our unity and how it brings both Gentile and Jewish believer together in Jesus Christ. And so we get, in the first part, a lesson on how to have a relationship with God. What does the Christian life look like? And then we get, a, in the middle, a uh, letter that speaks to our relationship with other believers. In the first part, we're told to remain or abide in Christ ten times in eleven verses. So ten times, John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writes that we should remain, or depending on our translation, abide in Christ. Jesus. That's the Christian life. We'll talk about that more briefly. Then in verses, in six verses, verses 12 to 17, we're told to uh, love other people four times in six verses. The emphasis in these verses being on our communion as the people of God together. We are to commune. We are to, to gather. We are to get together and remind each other that we're not what we want to be, perhaps, but we're not what we used to be because of the grace of God. And that's a consistent reminder that I need and that you need. We're to be reminded that the gospel is enough and that we don't have to get into a works-based faith now that we've received it by grace. It was a free gift that was given to us, not a bill that was to be paid later. Oh, it's okay. Y'all will warm up. I know. It's good stuff. Then the end of the chapter deals with the believer's relationship with the world. And what we see as the major theme of those verses in verses 18 to 27 is this theme of persecution. And we're told that there will be hate that will come because of our vertical relationship with Jesus and our commitment to other believers around us. And we're told that hate will come in the path of long-observed obedience. And we shouldn't be surprised by persecution. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised by that kind of hate because if they ridicule Jesus for being obedient to the Father, how much more will they ridicule you as you walk in the same path that Jesus walked in obedience into the glory of God the Father. So there's a little overview over the chapter, but what I really want to do is dive into these first 11 verses, and I want to talk to you about the normal Christian life. What is the normal Christian life? For some of you, you went to a Gaither homecoming, you went to a Billy Graham uh, uh, thing, maybe you went to that weird Billy Graham one in Charlotte. I went to that one back in the day when he had DC Talk there, and they covered a Smashing Pumpkins song. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Uh, a lot of people didn't think that was cool. He got a lot of hate mail over that one. But they did it. It happened. So if you already are like freaked out by what we're doing, we're just trying to be like Billy Graham. <laughs> you can argue with him. Uh, what I want to do is talk about the normal Christian life. And it's laid out in these 11 verses. After you've prayed the prayer, after you've been baptized, what does it look like for you to live a life that gives honor and glory to God? I would submit to you that a lot of us, we want to live a life that makes an impact for God, yet we struggle to figure out how that works in real life. How, how does a life that's overcoming, how does a life that matters in eternity uh, happen in what's been normal in, in our marriages and paying mortgages and working jobs that we struggle to connect the kingdom of God to? I mean, what is the normal Christian life that gives us the confidence that on the last day we can stand before God and have confidence that we fought the good fight and ran the race that he called us to run? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, hopefully that consumes your thoughts from time to time. 
and the way that you live your life, hopefully from time to time you consider, is the life that I'm living a life that I want to be found living on the last day when Jesus comes back, or on my last day when my faith is made sight before him. And if that's the case, and that's something you're trying to figure out, John 15 gives us some incredible insight into it. Look at this text with me. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says this, I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. Now that that statement's strong. It's an identifying statement. There's seven of them in the book of John. This is the seventh I am statement. It's the last one John will use to describe Jesus. Some of the other ones, he says, I'm the bread of life. So just as bread sustains you physically, I sustain you spiritually. And if you want to live a full spiritual life, it's going to have to consist of a diet of me. Another part of the text in the gospel, Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. And a lot of people left in John 6 because they're like, that, it, it got weird. It got a little over the top. I was with you until cannibalism. But they didn't understand that what Jesus was saying is he is the bread. And if you want to live a spiritually overcoming full life, it takes a consistent diet of being consumed with his gospel, being consumed with him. He says that he's the bread. He says that he is the light. In another text, he's the light of the world, John 8, 12. It is Christ's light that overcomes the darkness, and he guides us out of that darkness into the marvelous light that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter. He says in John 10 that he is the door that protects the sheep from the predators and the prey that just seek to devour and discourage and take you away from confidence in your faith. He says in John 11 that he's the resurrection of the life. So we have this confidence on the other side of the grave that comes from the fact that Jesus' resurrection assures us that he has the final word over our time and life and destiny. Oh, it's so much good stuff. Let's just preach the whole Bible. Why, why do we even continue to go to work? Let's just all quit our jobs. I'm just kidding. Some of you like, it got weird. That, I was with you until it got weird. John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then finally here, we read in verse 1 of chapter 15, he is the true grapevine. What does that mean? Let's talk about it. Look at verse 2. He says, the father, who's the gardener, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. You're not pruned and purified because you're culturally born into a Christian family. You're not pruned and purified because you abstain from sins that others partook in. You are uh, a part of and connected to the vine and in the vineyard of the Father because Jesus, by the gospel, has reconciled, reached, and saved you. You heard whosoever believes can have life, and you, in hearing that, turn to Christ and not to works, and as a result of it, you were made new. Uh, You become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, remain in me. For some of you, your translation will say abide, and I will remain in you. There's that word again. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain, there's that word again, third time, in me. Now, just in case you're not understanding the Christian life, and you're thinking that it's at some part in the road about you doing something for God apart from his provision and his energy, we get verse 5 where Jesus recaps everything he has just said in a different way. He says, yes, I am the vine. Make sure you get your role. 
the Triple Bs, the Ball Brothers, his father, Big Baller, is famous for saying, know your lane or stay in your lane. And Jesus is essentially saying in the Christian life, in order for this to work, you need to know your lane and you've got to stay in your lane. It is not your job to provide provision for good works. It's your job to turn to the vine who provides for all good works that he's called you to do. At the end of the day, listen to me, you are not in a uh, resource crisis. You have, according to Scripture, in Christ Jesus, everything you need to accomplish every good work he's called you to do today. Now, he's not given you enough to go and take on tomorrow's burdens with today's provision, but he has provided today what you need to take on the challenge, to give God glory, to live in obedience today in a way that would give God glory in the future. So he is the vine. You are the the branches. It's not your job to provide. It's your job to abide. Go ahead and write that down. It's not your job to provide for what God has called you to. It's your job to abide. Simply put, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. But the reason many of you lack provision or energy or the effort and drive to do what God has called you to do is you are still consumed with your will and you've not gotten your will out of the way. One of my favorite things to do when people come into my office for counseling is I'll have them sit down in a crisis or maybe they're trying to discern a calling of what God would have them do with their life. And I'm like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Take out a piece of paper. And they're like, all right, give me the assignment, you know, because we love doing stuff. You go to the gym the first day of the year, you want an assignment. You're going to come here, you're going to work out, you throw up five days a week. <laughs> then like the second week, you're there one day a week, and then they're texting you and you're ghosting them. And then by February, they've put up all the extra workout equipment that they pulled out for the big crowds because everybody that didn't change their habits has already gotten back into the old habit of eating Twinkies. Am I too close to home? <laughs> so so look, look at what he's saying. He's saying, essentially, you, what, what, what's going on here is there's this consistent call for you to trust in me, to give you what you lack to do what I've called you to do. And for a lot of us, we're not there because we get into this situation where we're consumed with our will. And what ends up happening is you end up in pastor's office or someone's office and I'll say, pull out a piece of paper. And here's what I say, write everything you want down. And they do. It's usually not hard for them to produce everything they want. And they never know that they're walking into a trap. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm glad that you write that, wrote that down. And th- these may be good things. They may have admiral and uh, admiral ambition behind them. Like, I'm going to do this for God. That's why I want to win the lottery, so I can honor God. I'm dishonoring God and living above my means right now and getting into more and more debt, which doesn't honor God, and it doesn't allow me to be generous as the people of God to my neighbor. But if I win the lottery, I'm going to magically change. You can't write a $100 check. You think you're going to write a million-dollar check? Too close? So I have them write everything down. And then I say, okay, rip it out, ball it up, and let's throw it in the trash. And they're like, what? This isn't gentle. I'm like, no, no, that's the point. We now know what you want. Now, blank page, I'll be back in 30 minutes. Let's figure out what God wants. And you would be surprised. When you get out of the way with what you want and your will, how God clearly comes through with the most simplistic and clear of calls. Some of you right now in your life, are waiting on a grandiose moment where Tess from Touched by an Angel stands at the foot of your bed. 
and you wake up and you hear this red-headed, Roma Downey, Irish voice say, because that's how all angels speak. They all have Irish accents. And she looks at you and says, the Lord loves you. And I have come to deliver the message that you're to go to the unreached people group of sugar tit. And then you can walk in God's calling. But here's what I want you to know. There are two, three, maybe four times where God gives you this distinct change of course calling in your life. But there is his revealed will that's in the word of God. And it's always his will that you would be walking in it. And for for you and I, if we would be consistent here, we'll be ready for when that big call comes there. But if we're not consistent here, then we're going to miss out and not be prepared for the big moment where we could sell everything and move to Cincinnati or sell everything and move to an unreached people group or make some drastic step of faith because we've not been faithful in small things. We aren't ready for the big faith step in the big thing when it comes. And I just simply want to remind you that God has a will and it's not hidden from you. It is revealed. It is his will that you would make disciples of all nations and that is right now. That's not like in the future. Like in your neighborhood, there's your calling to make disciples. Uh, To love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's always God's will. And for some of you, like you could practice that with your spouse right now. And it would be a great first step in walking in the will of God for you to be loving, considerate, and patient with your closest neighbor. And that's the person you said I do to a couple of years ago or many years ago. Jesus is the vine. You are the branch. The Father is the gardener in this story. Let me get back to the text before I get myself into more trouble and clear more seats out for Easter. It says this, but if, verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. That's what we call a theological trap. Let me be brief here. If I'm abiding in Jesus... If Jesus is my treasure, then I no longer am living in carnality. Therefore, his desires become my desires. Therefore, my prayers become his desires. And I can ask as he is leading and guiding and directing me for his will to be done. And my prayers are in accordance with his work. And he provides provision for that work to be done through me and not in spite of me. So don't, don't think, oh, gas is getting expensive, and Lord, give me a sign that I need to get a Tesla. And then you read verse 7, and you're like, let's go into debt, honey. No, no, no. No, no, Maybe God's will may not be God's will. Maybe God's will that instead of you getting an upgrade on your car, you buy a single mom and need that car. I, it's a crazy idea. Some of you are like, you're talking about money a lot right now. And I know, and I ain't talked about you giving to the church a single dime. If your generosity is encompassed by church giving, then we're not generous people. Like, like, like generosity means it changes lifestyle, that my neighbor's considered in it. Uh, my wife and I are joking because we're trying to add in new giving partnerships locally with people that we believe in that are doing great work. But we have a lot contributed still to partnerships in California. I mean, we still give to the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center in California. And we're still giving to this little Christian radio station that represents the gospel. And people give their life to Jesus driving around listening to the radio. I was a DJ at it for 
three and a half years, and we've now given them back the salary they gave me times five, like, you know, like just giving back to them over and over again. We want to be generous. I'll, I'll remind you, it says in the book of Isaiah that a generous man devises generous plans, and by his generosity, he stands. So generosity is predetermined and planned. It's not accidental. You don't wake up one morning, and you're like, how did we get so generous last night? I don't know. We got, started making it rain for the cancer society. Like, like that doesn't... Remain in me, my word remains in you, and then your desires become his desires. You can ask anything, and it'll be granted. Verse 8, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Now, I'm going to probably jump around like I have been here a little bit, but let, but let me point it out. Jesus' desire is that his fruit would be evident in your life. His plan, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus is that when your life is observed, when your legacy is seen, that the, per, the funeral has already been preached by the fruit that's on the branch that speaks to the God that you served. I'm sick of doing Christian funerals for people that got no fruit on the branch. And then the family's going, well, we think. They prayed back in, you know, 76 one time. But there was no fruit on the branch. The goal is that it would be evident, distinctive, like light and darkness. That your life would, not by self-righteous effort, but by spirit-empowered effort, would illuminate the light around you. To, to the point that the world would either see the light and run or see the light and hide. Run to the light, run from the light. Hide in the dark or walk into the hope that if God saves people like me, he can save people like you. Are, are you tracking with me? The idea is that his light will be seen in your life. Verse 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Here's that word again. Abide, remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's command and remain in his love. I've told you these things that you may be filled with my joy. <laughs> What's God's plan for your life? Joy. That there would be this welling up, uncontainable, while God that would exude from you as praise, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what country you're in, regardless of peace or wartime, that this joy would bubble up from his presence in you. His plan is joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hand. And some of you are like, we're in church, we're in church, and we were happy once, and our face will let you know if it ever changes. And your face is telling me a lot's changed. You see, joy is not containable. Joy is not something you like control. Like, I'm just going to, you know, church clap. No, like, like it exudes from us. And look, I argue usually with men on this point because men are like, I'm just not expressive. And I'm like, dude, I've seen you at sporting events, like fighting, like your team's getting beat like a tied up goat at the goalpost, and you are yelling things in great passion. You're not sitting back going, 
well, the boys just don't seem to be having it together today. We're going to have to, we're going to try harder. Let's go team. All right. Huh. No, I mean, grown men lose their mind yelling and screaming for what they love. The thing I am poking at is that for some of you, what you don't love is being revealed because your joy is in 18-year-olds who are athletic, not in a God who transcends time and has saved you. And I'm just not okay with apathy sitting in the church with you crossing your arms while your wife's wanting you to rise up in the Spirit of God to be the man of God you've been called to be and to be the example of God to your family that you've been called and filled by the Spirit and He's wanting to provide for you to become in your family. I want you to be the leader of expression enjoy your gratitude to God for your family. I want you to be the lead repenter that bends your knee and is not afraid to pray. I understand that some of you have not prayed a lot out loud, but that should not be the ending point. If you've been walking with the Lord and you've been walking with Him for decades, we should at this point have confidence that we can draw close not by eloquent speech, but by the very high priest that has led us into the presence of the Father and He has given you access to the throne room and as a man of God, you've got this unique opportunity as a covering over your family to lead them into the presence of God as you abide in his presence and provision to give your family the fruit that only he can bear in your life so that they can enjoy it and be benefited from it in theirs. Look, if you want a church that babies you with kid gloves, ain't your home. There's a lot of churches on 101. Someone will maybe let you hide. Jesus is coming back, men. It's not time to run in running shoes and hide in the wilderness. It is time to put our work boots on and to be, by the grace of God and the ongoing work of God, the men of God that he's called us to be. And I'll never apologize for asking you to repent when your example doesn't represent Christ, to admit your deficiency apart from Christ, and to declare daily your dependency upon him. This has been my life ambition. I am, someone came in uh, and they looked at me and they said, you're really young. I'm like, yeah, grace of God. I've been doing this for 15 years. Do you know how, how old church work has made me feel? <laughs> Leading a, a large church through a pandemic in California and, and feeling like Jesus said, pick up and move and all the ridicule and all of the persecutions that have come from walking in the path. And all you're like, oh, I want to I do what he does. Uh, I don't know that you want to sit in the seat I'm sitting in, eating the arrows that I've eaten. Hmm. What's the Christian life? It's this desperation for Jesus. It, it's this I don't care about saving face attitude. For a lot of us, we have this Christianity that Jesus starts by a prayer of salvation. And then we as the branch, we run off to do for Jesus, detached from the vine, great things and gratitude for what he has done for us. This is not how you honor God and live the Christian life. This is how you compartmentalize your life into a man-made religion that does not honor him. And for some of you, you're like, well, I'm going to give him credit uh, whenever I in greed, go and run down this path and forsake my family and forsake my own pursuit of Jesus for nine months so I can stack it, 
so that we can have all the stuff that my kids aren't asking me for, but I think they need. I'm going to bring it back and say, props, Jesus, like the rapper that gets the Grammy Award for objectifying women and then gives honor to God. God wasn't honored in that. He doesn't want any assent or glory in that. For many of us, this is the Christianity we face. We're a branch, we detach, we do something great for God. And if we get in trouble, we'll let God know that we need his help. That's American Christianity 101. I got this now, God. You saved it. You took care of eternity. It took your son's very life, and you've offered the Holy Spirit to me to be the helper and to provide for me in every avenue of my life. But I got this. And God's like, no, you don't. You don't understand it. Every time you do that, you go prodigal. You're still a son, but you're the prodigal son. Every time you do that, you come up short of what God intended for your life. You may still make a difference and by God's grace hold a salvation that you carry into eternity, but it will not be as fruitful as it could have been, not because you didn't do big things for God, but because you didn't remain and abide in God. See, the, the point is that you would abide, that you would depend desperately upon you, that the, when the world looks at you, they would see someone who is clinging to the vine, trusting in the provision of the vine. That, that's the whole point. Now, here's what happened in Jesus' time. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and the Jewish people went, oh, and here's why. In the Old Testament, as a nation, they were known as the vineyard of God. If you go all the way back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says this. Isaiah 5, 7. I know I'm skipping around. I jumped around too much. It says this. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's army. So these are God's people for God's possession. What was the call when God called them out of Egypt and promised that he was going to take them to a land overflowing milk and honey? He, he says that he would be their God, that they would be his people, that he would bless them to be a, okay, a blessing to the nations. Their blessing wouldn't be so that they could just simply be distinguished as the chosen of God and everybody else, they, they weren't born in the right culture, but that they would be blessed by God so that the entire world would be blessed through them as Jesus came through this messianic lineage. So the idea is that we are the vineyard of God. In fact, if you look at a picture of their currency, uh, it has the grapevine that was on it. The nation of Israel, even up to 1949, had uh, a grapevine on their currency that spoke to the fact that they are the vineyard of God. Now, all of these arguments in the New Testament start breaking out when all these creepy Gentiles start showing up. And the debate is, do you have to get circumcised to be in the church? How much of the Jewish law, not, not the law given to us, the Decalogue and the commandments that God gave us in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but how much of the added to that law so that you don't get close to breaking that law with man's law, how much of that do you have to adhere to to be Christian? How culturally Jewish do you have to be to be here? Let me ask it this way. If this is white church, how white you got to be to be on? If this is black church, how black you got to be to belong? If this is southern Bible Belt church, how southern and culturally affiliated with all of the things we value down here do you have to be to belong? Do you have to vote the same? Y'all want, wanted a preacher that would meddle or, or that would stay out of you. But how, how much? 
How much cultural familiarity do we have to have to be on the vine? And this was the problem. For the nation of Israel, they believed either you hit the jackpot by birth or you missed out. No need to be concerned with all those pagans over there. And Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. And they don't understand him. Because he's allowing Gentiles to dine with him at his table and people of ill repute that they said aren't in to be in. And they didn't change overnight. They didn't like, you know, they still, they still were wearing the same clothes. They still smelled the same way. They were still carrying the markers of a disease. And so Romans comes around and Paul's trying to teach a church that's being ripped at the seams by a unity that's founded in culture and not Christ. And in the middle of it, Paul says this to the Gentiles who are beginning to pound their chest because they got grace and all these crazy Jewish people just don't get it. And this is what he says to them, similar theme. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, uh, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, which was through the lineage of Abraham came Moses, and through the lineage of Moses came King David, and through the lineage of King David came this Messiah. His name is Jesus, and he is the name under which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if you got Jesus, you've got the blessing of God and the promise of Abraham fulfilled in Christ, because everything in Christ is yes and amen, and he is the total fulfillment of the law. He's the treasure of heaven. You've now been given this promise of Abraham and his children sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. Look at what he goes on to say. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Jesus describes his heart in one space in all of Scripture. His words describing his heart. And he says, I'm meek and kind. Many of us as Christians are anything but meek and kind. We're arrogant and boastful. And we're repugnant to the world around us. He's essentially saying in this text and in John 15, that for some of you, uh, you've been given a privileged starting point. Here's what I mean. You were born in a family that held to the traditions of the faith. This is really practical to us, especially in the Bible Belt. And so let's say... This is grandma's faith, and she's attached as a branch to the vine. I represent the vine in this illustration. There's grandma. There's mom. There's dad. They have a firsthand faith, a vibrant faith. They trust in Jesus. Grandma had a prayer room in the prayer closet. And whenever someone would get sick, grandma would walk in the closet, and everyone felt good because grandma's faith, we knew she was connecting with Jesus. Amen? Amen. And you had the privilege of that example. That's you. Being born here may give you the benefit of their fruit, but it doesn't mean that you will be fruitful or grafted in. Jesus' desire is not that you would have a cultural second-hand faith, but that you would have a first-hand faith. And you can benefit from the example of grandma, but it will not get you into heaven. And some of you, this is where you're at. You culturally, you culturally are Christian, but it is practiced through someone else's active first-hand faith. 
And Jesus, the scriptures teach that there's one high priest between us and God the Father. And it's not Russ, and it's not Grandma, and it's not a preacher, and it's not a pope. His name is Jesus, and he is the mediator and the vine that brings the living and the dead on the last day before the Father for judgment. So you may have the privilege of a starting point that has taught you the faith. My kids, they have the privilege of seeing parents who are very imperfect but are actively trying to follow Jesus. Parents, the best gift you give your kids is for this to be an example that they have to follow, that they can see your faith practiced. Now this is very difficult because most of our Bible study nights end up with ER visits because they don't pay attention, they fall off the bed. We do praise and worship and it turns into a 1994 Nirvana concert and a mosh pit and someone's crying. Then we ask them what the Bible point was that we were trying to teach them and they look at us like this. And at times it's like, why are we trying? But, but my kids will see through apology. I blew up at my daughter this week and disciplined her in anger. Guess what I had to do? I went and said, babe, that was wrong. I was not representing Jesus to you. I am so sorry. Can you forgive daddy? They're going to see an example of my faith from that. Are you tracking with me? Now, that doesn't mean that they get salvation. They will have to determine for them who their Lord is for themselves. That's to come firsthand. Now, here's what's great. Some of you, this is not where you were born. And you're like, well, the reason we're where we're at is because we weren't here. We were over here. And here's what's great. Starting here does not eliminate you from ending here. You may be the first in your family to trust in Jesus, but you can have a vibrant relationship with Christ, and there's nothing that keeps you from that or should keep you from that relationship. So, so here's a few questions to consider. What do you do? What do you do if you look on the end of your branch of your life and you don't see Christ's fruit? What do you do? And, and you, your whole life, have gone to church, and maybe you echoed a prayer that someone mimicked, and you're like, am I really saved? Because the, the, the fruit speaks to the connection to the vine, not to the effort of the person or the religious act that you have done. And so the question is, are you in the vine? Are you connected? And if you're not seeing fruit in your life, I would encourage you to consider a few questions. Number one, is your faith firsthand or secondhand? First hand or second hand, can you remember a time where you came to the realization that you were a sinner separated and cut off from God and you needed the grace of God to forgive you and place you into the hands of the Father and you turned to Jesus who was the substitute and the payment for your sin and trusted that his sacrifice and sweat equity was enough to move you from unrighteous to righteous, from death to life? Have you had a moment where grandma's faith or the faith that you saw mirrored, however perfect or imperfectly mirrored, became a firsthand experience and faith. Do you have a story of how God's moved on your behalf? Not on grandma's or the family's behalf. How has he saved you? And this is the beauty. Every single one of us that are in Christ have a story. It may not be salacious. It may not have tons of, like, you know, I went and lived in Vegas and a lot of stuff needed to stay by the blood of Jesus in Vegas and there's still charges that could pin against me there. Like, you don't, you don't have to 
uh, like have that story to have a story of how God's moved on your behalf. Your story may be, I was self-righteous and religious. That was the Apostle Paul. I, I abstained from the lust of the world, yet I was still unrighteous before God. And Jesus saved me from man-made self-righteous religion and brought me into a vibrant, living, and active faith. That may be your story. What's your story. If you don't see fruit and you don't have a story, then it may speak to a relationship that you're talking about but doesn't actually exist. You may speaking about a move of God, but you've never experienced a move of God, which is the desire of what would happen at salvation, is that the presence of God and the Spirit of God would fill you and live inside of you and change you. Do you have a story of how God moved on your behalf if you don't have fruit in your life? Another great place to turn to is getting insight from other believers. Ask your spouse if you're married, have you seen Jesus at work in my life? Honestly, can you see Christ in me? That's what Colossians says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if I'm watching as a believer Trish's life, I'm going to see Jesus at work in Trish if Jesus is there. So there should be fruit that speaks to that. And you can get wisdom from other brothers and sisters that are like, hey, you may be doubting it. You may be struggling in it. You may have gone prodigal, but you've still been a son. You've still been a daughter of God. That's not changed. And I see Jesus in you in spite of the imperfections you see that speaks to a salvation that's begun that will not end until the very end of time. Uh, What do you believe on the last day will be your reason for why you should be saved? This is a great question to ask. If you're not seeing fruit on the bottom, what do you believe on the last day will be the reason you are saved? Is it something you've done and earned? I was a relatively good person. That doesn't work. God doesn't grade on a scale of righteousness. There's Christ and then there's unrighteous. So if you aren't Jesus, you fall into the category called unrighteous, which means you need Jesus. And here's what's great. You can't buy Jesus. You can't earn Jesus. You can't give a promise of a future payment that you'll give to Jesus to deserve him. Jesus offers himself for free. It's the only free thing without strings you'll ever discover in your life. Free. Is it something you've done to earn it or is it something you've received from Christ? Now, the way to live a fruitful life and a Christian life is you abide, you remain. It's spoken ten times. So how in the world do you remain? Because that's hard. And we want something like, like big. But, but it's simple. The Christians that are being fruitful around you are doing consistently what you're doing occasionally. I'm going to say it again. Some of you are like, I, I packed up my notebook 10 minutes ago. The Christians you admire that are fruitful around you, that you're experiencing the benefit of their fruit, they often are not, they're not super Christian. They're not, you know, like more committed than you in some way. They are remaining and abiding. And as a result of that abiding, they are bearing much fruit. It's not of their effort. It's of them staying in the presence of God. What does that look like? What are they doing consistently that I do occasionally if I want to be more consistent in fruit bearing? Well, here, three things I can see in the Bible. You ready? Number one, Luke 9, 23. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. Here's the word. Daily. That means every day as a follower of Jesus, we either live by the flesh, which does not honor God or accomplish the work of God, or we live by the Spirit. It's either carnal or spiritual. And you cannot do spiritual things with carnal means. I just want to keep reminding you of this. So we have every day this opportunity to wake up and live it by what we see and what we think to be a possibility, or to wake up and say, glad that's what you think, flesh, but I'm going to climb on this cross 
crucify my flesh, and I'm not going to allow the flesh to lead my spirit. My spirit will lead my flesh into good work, into what God sees, into what God thinks. So I'm taking up my cross and I'm following. Look at what it says. It says daily. For some of you, that's too broad. This is how dependent we are on Jesus. It's minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year, decade by decade of constant, consistent dependence on God. That's the Christian life. I know, it's not complex. Some of you are like, I thought you were going to tell me I had to quit pornography. If we start with quitting porn, if we start with quitting sin, and we don't start with abiding in Christ, then you don't have the power to overcome it, and you're going to be defeated by it again and again. We've got to start with the vine. So we don't take the branch and say, get over it and figure it out. No, we encourage you. That's not gospel, that's religion. We encourage you, abide, lean in, trust Jesus, love God with your whole heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Trust in Him, deepen in your dependency upon Him, and allow Him to give you the provision to overcome what you have yet to overcome in the flesh by the Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that now lives inside of you. Y'all quitting on me. Y'all don't want no more, I guess. Number two, I'm going to give you more. You can watch it back in video later. Number two, we yield to the Spirit and not the flesh. Where do we get it from? Ephesians 4.30. I've been talking about it. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. Some of you are on the vine and you're not fruitful. It's because we, we have this consistent problem of, well, doing what the Bible's called us to do. What, what is God's will for your life? If you look down at verse 10 and 11, look at what it says. Uh, verse 10, he says, uh, when you, oh, let me go to verse 9. I'm sorry. Verse 9. Jesus says, John 15, 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love. How do you abide? You love God. What does love look like? Verse 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. I know that in our minds, commandments and love can't go together. And for many of us, what we started with is we were commanded, but we didn't love. So we, we were commanded, do these things if you want to be a Christian, or you can just be a bad one. Try harder if you want to be a Christian. And church is a whole bunch of the pastor telling you about how he succeeded in his faith and how you felt in yours. Be careful when your pastor is the superhero of his stories because he may have a savior complex that he's lost sight of, his need of the real savior in his own life. No, no, no. I do because I love. That, that's the whole point. The spirit stirs my affection for Jesus, and I want to honor Jesus, and because I love Jesus, I abstain from things that I once said yes to. I don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. When I married my wife, they didn't give me a guidebook that said, here's the 10 things you must do to make this marriage work. Instead, I have learned, because I love her, how to serve her beyond myself. I have learned to to uh, walk and be compassionate and gracious and repentant and broken and humbled before her because I love her and I want her to see me in the most vulnerable state that no one else in this world gets to see. After all, they were naked and unashamed. 
but it's love that drives me to the boldness of standing before her in all of my brokenness and all of my imperfection and allowing God to keep us in a place of intimacy where he's at work because a portion of his spirit is given to us in that vow that we made to each other to provide for us what we don't have. And so the spirit of God comes and he, out of love, stirs our love for each other. And we get to, let's stay together. And we grow old and we're, our goal is rocking chairs and porches and hand-holding and I won't get into any more details, but I love her, therefore I abstain from certain things. I love God, therefore I abstain, and I don't grieve the Spirit. If you want to abide, you've got to take up your cross daily. You've got to yield to the Spirit and not to the flesh. And then here's the last part. It's really revolutionary. You've never thought of it. You've never heard it. No, these are simple things when done consistently that bring incredible results. Simple habits that when done consistently bring incredible results. James 1.22, he says this, but don't just listen to God's word. That's what a lot of us have done. You didn't come to church today if all you did was listen. Yeah, I heard that sermon before. Impress me, preacher. <laughs> you came to hear the spirit of God through the word of God. I'm a means, not the show. Don't come in here and, and I don't want to hear good job. Good job. I'm not going to do anything, but good job. It's depressing. No, no, no. I, I want you to hear the word and for you to go, man, maybe, maybe we should walk on that. Maybe we should, we should actually, it's revolutionary, not talk about what it says for 75 years, have a discussion group around what it says, but what if we, it's crazy, it's a really strong word in the Greek and the Hebrew, d d do, if you tell your kids, clean your room up, you go up a couple hours later and the room's not clean and you're like, why didn't you clean your room? No, oh, we had a Bible study about it. We prayed about the room getting clean. We had a discussion about different ways the room could be clean. And that's a lot of American Christianity, guys. You don't know why people ain't coming back to church? Because the church was irrelevant before they ever told you you couldn't go. A bunch of us getting together and being like, yep, he ain't here yet. Just another weekend check. Just want to make sure, you know, I want to be here when Jesus comes back. No. Do the word. Otherwise, you are only, and this is scary, fooling yourselves into thinking what? That you have a first-hand faith that may not be faith at all. So what's on your branch? What's on your branch? Is it the fruit of God or is it the fruit of the flesh? Is it to the glory of God or is it to the glory of self? Even if you've masqueraded and given him some assent of credit in the middle of your carnality. Jesus wants you to bear much fruit. And the way we do it is we get desperately clingy, dependent on Him. Our prayer team's gonna be here. We respond at the end of our services and give you an opportunity, if you don't know Jesus, to surrender your life to Jesus. If you've walked in sin, we give you an opportunity to repent of your sin. We bend our knees here. We raise our hands. 
we admit our need of Christ when we have fallen short. And as we respond, if the Spirit leads and you don't know Jesus, and through introspection you've come to the realization that you may have a cultural familiarity with Christ, but not a firsthand act of faith with Him, then man, why fool yourself and fool everybody else for another week? Come home. If you're struggling to bear fruit, why wait for the grand thing when you're not doing the consistent thing that you know God has called you to do? Trust Him today. Walk in obedience with Him today and allow Him to bear fruit through your life that is inexplainable apart from Him. Whatever it is the Lord would have you do, you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, let's stand our feet.